She was created to enjoy those things. But second, the gifts themselves were never designed or intended to bring fullness of joy or pleasures forevermore. Walt Kaiser Jr. wrote in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, quote, life in and of itself is unable to supply the key to the questions of identity, meaning, purpose, value, enjoyment, and destiny. He says, only in coming to know God can one begin to find answers to these questions. That's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is doing. He's helping us on this journey and he's helping us navigate how to enjoy life in relationship with God. Everything, all of it under the sun will seem meaningless until you know the one above the sun. That's the whole point of this book and we need this book. Because we still sometimes believe the lies of materialism or the lies of human experience absent from God. If your heart echoes with meaninglessness this morning, if you have embraced the lie that hope is nothing more than delayed disappointment, would you please listen to God's word this morning? Would you please look at what is before you this morning? Because this is supposed to picture something. This is an illustration of something. This symbolizes how much God loves you. He loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die in your place. The broken bread symbolizes His broken body for you. The juice represents His shed blood for you. What greater love has a man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. The real answer to Ecclesiastes, in simple form, that all is vanity under the sun, the real answer is Jesus, God's Son. That's the answer. So where have we been? What have we learned? In the first section, chapter 1, Verse 2 to chapter 2, verse 26. So basically chapters 1 and 2. The teacher's personal experience leads him to the motto of the book. And the motto is this. All is vanity. All is meaninglessness. All is emptiness. All is a mist. As James said of our life, your life is but a mist. It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He uses in in this book the phrase under the sun 29 times. In only 12 chapters. So there's something that we're supposed to learn about life as we can observe it under the sun. So you have this under the sun phrase, and then you have this term all. This is a comprehensive search. That little word all is found more frequently in this book than in any other book of the Bible. It's frequency per chapter. So, all, everything, completely comprehensive, under the sun, is meaningless. Have you ever felt that way? We've had experiences as a church in the last month that could lead us to this conclusion again. It's all vanity. What is the purpose? But the teacher in Ecclesiastes, rather than saying life is pointless or meaningless, is directing us down the path of wisdom. In in Ecclesiastes 12, he said he will use words of wisdom like a cattle prod. He will push this 
beast the direction he wants it to go. Where is he pushing us? Where is he pointing us when he comes to this conclusion? Towards fullness of joy in God. That's where he's pushing us. <coughs> so he takes every experience and he says, yes, it's meaningless. Every delight that we think will ultimately satisfy and we wake up again empty. Friday night, some of us in here tried to satisfy ourselves and Saturday morning we were worse off. We were empty. The teacher is pointing us towards relationship. One of the interesting things we found when we made our home in Africa for so many years is how content people in poverty can be. How joyful people with nearly nothing can sing to God on Sunday morning. And the point is, and the teacher makes this point, that's because joy is not based on stuff, either a lot or little. Joy is based in relationship with God. Chapter 2, verse 26, he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge, and listen to this, and joy. God gives those things to the one who pleases him. That's the first section. We are in the second section, which goes from chapter 3, verse 1, to the end of chapter 5. So, section 1, chapters 1 and 2, section 2, chapters 3 to 5, and it begins with a poem. Probably the most familiar part of the entire book. There is a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. You have basically 14 opposites next to each other. 28 times he uses the word time. There's a time to be born. And what's the contrast? And a time to what? Does that mean we don't grieve? No, but as believers, we don't grieve as others because we have hope, a confident expectation in God. To the person who knows God, to the person who fears God, to the person who relates to God through the keeping of His commandments, we know this truth in chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its what? Time. From that truth, the teacher quickly moves to times that present anomalies in life. Do you remember this? So if he makes everything beautiful in its time, what about the injustices of life? Or we would say, what about the times when there is no justice? There are some of us in here who are still waiting for justice about something that touched our family. And this morning, there is still no justice. What do you do with that anomaly? What do you do with the death of both humans and animals? So you have no justice. You have no seeming lasting life. The oppression of people, no comfort. The envy of people, no contentment. The isolation of people, no companion. The temporary nature of success, no lasting legacy. And when you come to the end of all these, if this is what you were seeking satisfaction in, what's the answer? All is vanity. It's meaningless. And when you experience these, don't become, don't react as a practical atheist where in your thinking and in your actions you say there's really no God. I mean, practical atheists can still gather and sing and listen to a sermon and bow their head during prayer, but in their heart they're saying what Psalm 14 says. In their heart they're saying what? 
There's no God. Not one that I think is worthy to worship. How can I worship a God that allows that in the world? See, these are real questions. This is the tension of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 4. The danger is, and, and this is what we must keep ourselves from doing, is interpreting God's character through a single lens. So one horrific, painful tragedy that touches our life, if that's the only lens through which you are discerning who God is, you will fall into danger. God is bigger than that, and He is more than that, and He is telling you in His Word that He is sovereign over all these things. So that's why we come to chapter 5 and the teacher's response to sort of these, this list of anomalies is chapter 5. And here's, here's the title of this sermon. Remember, we're putting them in terms of action. This morning is respond to God carefully. When you face these anomalies, when you face these deviations from the character of God, when you face things you can't explain, respond to God carefully. Here's what we're going to look at. And then we will respond to this revelation through the observance of the Lord's Supper together. In chapter 5, the teacher instructs us to guard your steps, be slow to speak and quick to obey. Third, to not be amazed by the injustice of oppression. And fourth, to realize the reality of loving wealth. Okay, All of those. Guard your steps. Be slow to speak and quick to obey. Don't be amazed by the injustice of oppression. And four, to realize the reality of loving wealth. Let's look at the first section. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Guard your steps. Let's read the passage. Remember, he's just come through all these anomalies. Things that push people away from trusting and loving God. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That's the first admonition. In the Old Testament worshippers' mind, it would have been saturated with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There were all kinds of exhortations, all kinds of commands, and it was built on covenant and it was built on relationship. Do you know that New Testament is just as clear, if not more? Let me just highlight one of these. Perhaps this is the thief that is causing unbelief in your heart. This is the thief of joy. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Ephesians says this. Look carefully then how you walk. The word walk means lifestyle, behavior. Not as unwise, but as wise. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? What is the will of the Lord for you and me this morning? Let me give you one example. Let me read out of a New Testament book that was written to the church at Thessalonica. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, us how you ought to walk, right? Guard your steps. That you do so more and more to please God. Okay? He doesn't just leave it sort of as this general principle. He goes on and he says this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
Are we, as a church, abstaining from sexual immorality in all its forms? Because that sin will rob you of joy. It will steal the pleasure of relationship in your heart. For this is the will of God, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives you His Holy Spirit to you. Folks, guard your steps when you come into the house of God. Some of you may not have known joy in God for years because you have never fully surrendered this area of your life to Him and somehow you justify it by saying, I'm not as bad as everybody else. I only allow this kind of immorality. It's measured. I'm in control of it. Do you know that is unacceptable with God? The world will not tell you this. The world would call this hate speech. But it's the truth of God's Word. Fight against it. Yes, we will be tempted until we see the Lord face to face. We're not removing that. Keep fighting against it. Before you excuse and protest that you are not as bad as others, listen to the next admonition in Ecclesiastes 5. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. In the Hebrew, like in the English, the word listen has a double force. Okay, so parents, when you tell your child, when we get ready to get serious, and you say, okay, I need you to listen to me. What do you mean? Like, just allow these words to go into your ears. Stand still. What are you expecting from the listening? And what we're expecting from the listening is that they what? They obey. When we say, okay, now listen to me. Okay, now I need your full attention. Okay, can you, can you hear me? And then you, you lay out the expectation. That's the idea of listening. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.27. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. Right? That double force. You remember Samuel had to confront King Saul. God told King Saul what he wanted him to do when he attacked the Amalekites. And Saul decided that he knew better than God and he disobeyed. And Samuel has to confront Saul in the midst of his excuses. And he says to obey is better than sacrifice. started meditating on that and how we could apply that because we're not attacking a pagan group of people. We're not kings. To obey God during the week is better than serving selflessly and singing beautifully on Sunday morning. To obey God in all things is better than giving a large cash gift to a missionary. 
To obey God in silence is better than being chatty and self-fixated at a Bible study group. Guard your steps. Draw near to Him and listen. And don't offer the sacrifice of fools. What is the sacrifice of fools? It's an interesting term. No reverence for God. Emotionless worship of God. Hypocritical worship of God. Careless observance of religion without any heart movement toward God. You remember what Jesus, he was teaching in John chapter 4, and he met this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. And he says that the Father is seeking worshipers that will worship him how? In spirit, small s, not capital S. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. But he says God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in their spirit and truth. And these counterbalance one another. It's not just truth. It's not just doctrine. It's not just right statements about God. It is right statements that affect your emotions. There are affections that spring up in true worship. Jesus said, that's the kind of worshipers my Father is seeking. Not worshipers where the truth just bounces off. But the truth where you... You do feel it deeply, passionately, affectionately. And for some of you, feeling deeply in a worship service looks like this. And it doesn't mean you're not feeling it, right? In your spirit, you're still glorifying God. And for some of you, it's this. And both are okay. Because the Father is seeking such to worship Him affectionately in in spirit as long as that affection and that emotion is guarded by truth. The conclusion that the teacher arrives at in Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, and you stay in chapter 5, but this is what he's going to reach. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We are not antinomian. That means against the law. First Timothy says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Grace does not mean now no obedience. If we are not keeping God's commandments, then we are not fearing Him. Something's off in our reverential awe of God. The truth is, if we are not keeping His commandments that Jesus put forward to us, this is what Jesus says, if you love Me, what? Keep My commandments. If I'm not, then what does that say about my love for Him? He says this, you are My friends if you what? Do whatsoever I have commanded you. If I'm not, Can I truly call him my friend at that point? Look at what it says next in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. See, those who truly know God, those who fear him, understand his holiness and his majesty. And we're not going to go before him with verbal excuses or Verbal promises that we don't intend to keep. Look at verse 3. For a dream comes with much busyness or business and a fool's voice with many words. Interesting statement. In both cases, he's addressing excess. 
There are many dreams which isn't reality. There are many words from a fool which aren't sincere. In both cases, the problem of excess is addressed and an attentive heart, a heart that is aware of God, is careful with their words and not overly busy. Okay, so that's guard your steps. Look at the next one. Be slow to speak and quick to obey. We'll work through this one quickly. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. And now he's going to pick up a particular aspect of speech. In the Old Testament, vows were part of worship. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So now you have the sacrifice of fools, and now you have empty vows that fools make. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So this is sort of the temple, the temple guardian, and they hear you make a vow in the temple, and then he comes back and follows up, and you say, oh, that was just a mistake. No, it's saying be a man or a woman of integrity. Be slow to speak and quick to obey. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there's that excess again, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Probably the most memorable, because it is horrific, the most memorable vow in the Bible is when Jephthah made a rash vow to God. Some of you will remember this. If you don't, let me encourage you, read your Old Testament. There's incredible truth in the Old Testament. But let me, Judges chapter 11, let me just read. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said... If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And God grants him success. And when he goes home, do you remember this? What comes out to meet him? His only child, a daughter. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold... His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Folks, be slow to speak before the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 25 says, It is a snare to say rashly. It is holy and to reflect only after making vows. There's great wisdom in Deuteronomy 23 that Jephthah would have had. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Listen to the next part. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Be slow to speak quick to hear, slow to anger. Verse 7 again, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Silence is undervalued in a noisy and busy culture. But God is the one you must fear. He keeps coming back to that, that term for an Old Testament relationship with God. Look at the next section. Don't be amazed by the injustice of oppression. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, which we see, and I know some of you in here are very sensitive to injustices in the world, 
The teacher says this, Do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. The Hebrew statement means that really it's only the king who profits from much busyness as people are working his fields. When you see this injustice and the workers are impressed, are oppressed, don't be amazed by it. Don't be startled by it. And, and again, you hear this note that the teacher sounds, and it is a note of accountability. There's a higher one over him, and if he fails to rule in justice, what? There is a higher one over him. Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73, had a similar struggle. He said, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, And then he, he talks about his his observation of the rich. But then he concludes this way in Psalm 73, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Guard your steps. Be slow to speak and quick to obey. Don't be amazed by the injustice of oppression And then the final one, the reality about loving wealth. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And I think it was when they asked J.D. Rockefeller at that time, the richest man in the world, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said what? Just a little bit more. Right? That's, that's what the teacher is telling us here. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and in anger. Okay, really quick, this section, just in clear bulleted points. Human desire will never be satisfied with wealth. Secondly, an increase in wealth demands a corresponding increase in staff or laborers who eat at the wealth and add the burden of responsibility upon a person. Third, labor may bring sleep, but wealth can bring sleeplessness with the fear that it could be destroyed or stolen. Fourth, a wealthy person, just like a poor person, returns to his maker naked without even the clothes he has on at the time of his departure. Derek Kidner commented on this verse and he said, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. And at this point, the teacher 
And the carpenter teacher in the New Testament say the same thing. Listen to Jesus' words. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is the end of the second section. How does the teacher conclude? Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. We have seen this so many times already. This is the conclusion. This is the conclusion. Okay? Eat, drink, find enjoyment in life that God has given. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Okay, so verses 18 to 20. What's the big idea? I want you to see it. I want you to find it. What words are repeated? I'll need a translator for that one. Okay. Three times a similar word is used. Enjoyment, enjoy, and joy. Isn't that what we're seeking? Okay, so here's the conclusion. When all these things happen in life and everything under the sun is vanity, enjoyment, enjoy, and joy. But that cannot be untethered from another word that is mentioned four times. And what is that? God. Enjoyment can only be found in God. God gives life, verse 18. God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, verse 19. This is the gift of God, verse 19. Verse 20, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Even if you have nothing materially, you can have great joy as God keeps you occupied with his own presence his own character, his own provision in your heart. So the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See how he replaces that? Just be content with what you have. Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Close your Bibles. And I want to read to you some final words of Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Think of the scene that creates in your mind. The sheep is safe and he's well fed and he's close to the protection of his shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it, how? Abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What greater love has this than a man will lay down his life for his friends. And he has done so by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. 
And in that, and it's so counterintuitive and it's so against the message that the world is preaching to us, there can only be true and lasting joy found in Jesus Christ. Savior, Lord, and friend. Let's pray.